This is the Question in Bodies podcast, a catalogue of inconclusive conversations about culture, gender, bodies, literature, movies and horror. With me, your host, Howard David Ingham. In this episode, Neurodiversity in Horror with guest Joanna Swan. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Question in Bodies podcast. And today I'm really glad to have as my guest, um, actor, voice actor, and sometime musician, Joanna Swan. Hi. Hi, Howard. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay, I, I think. Um, so today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about neurodiversity in horror movies. And there are various reasons why I want to talk about that and various reasons why I wanted to talk about that with Joanna, um, particularly. And partly because Joanna is like me, a horror hound. Um, <laughs> you do like a good horror movie, don't you? I know I do. Um, I and do. You do. And also because I wanted to talk about neurodiversity as represented in horror movies with someone who has very openly and very... Um, very very courageously I think talked about having had a diagnosis of autism as an adult and who's also handling their diagnosis better than I'm handling mine so like there so actually do you want to talk about um talk about that and yeah so I mean try to keep it brief which is always difficult but um so I got my di- diagnosis in around 2013 so it's been nearly 10 years and I, I sought my diagnosis because I had been having issues my whole life and they had come to a head in my work life because I, I wasn't always an actor. I used to work in, in offices and uh, yeah, things came to a head. I won't go into that, <laughs> but it was enough of a crisis to really make me seek answers and really go in depth. And by this time, I had enough insight into the issue of autism. And I began to think that this fit me. And I went on my diagnosis journey. And when I got my diagnosis, for me, it was a huge relief to be able to articulate, this is what it is. This is why I do these things. This is why I have trouble with these things. And and to be able to like start a new relationship and say, by the way, I am this. So if our relationship's going to work, um, I need you to know these things. And lo and behold, it's been my most <laughs> successful relationship I've ever had. So there must be something uh, to being able to know yourself, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's why for me, it, it's been good. But um, that's not to say it's been a bed of roses. Uh, I have had to fight to have myself recognised as such by some people who have quite old-fashioned ideas about autism. And I have sometimes found that by saying that you are autistic, you are also creating some barriers for yourself that may not have been there before because people then think, oh, well, if you're autistic, you can't do this and you can't do that. So maybe you're not right for this job. But on the other hand, I just think to know myself is just has been such a help. And um, I talk about it because 
I want to help people understand me and I want to help people understand themselves. Some people have actually come to me and saying, I'm seeking a diagnosis now. What should I be reading? Um, What should I be saying to health professionals? And it's nice to be able to help other people who are struggling. So, Well, I know. I mean, um, you're one of the people I came to when I had my own diagnosis because obviously I uh, really struggled with mine. Um, I was ambushed. I, 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 I don't know if I told you this at the time but I uh, I was it was suggested to me by someone that I go for a diagnosis of ADHD and uh, I did and um, you have the preliminary thing with a with a specialist and you have like a lengthy thing where they talk through things and during the thing you said oh yeah I think you're almost certainly ADHD and okay so I'm going to refer you and Oh, yeah. And here's the number for the um, South Wales Autism Self-Referral Line, because obviously, you know, you're also already you already know you're autistic, obviously. And uh, no, no, I did not know I was autistic. And I've been on, you know, about 18 months of that. And I've I've struggled with it. I'm not going to lie. And and one thing you said is also I've got kids and um, one of my two of my kids are actually in that process of like heading towards diagnoses of their own for being neurodiverse. And um, I went to a support group, um, an education group that was run by a local health service outlet. And I went and I came out of it feeling a lot worse because it became apparent to me that a lot of what the general medical orthodoxy thinks about us and therefore the structures of society and everything it's basically wrong yes you know and you're gonna have those barriers because they're basically like well you're disabled and you can't do this and you can't you can't relate in the same way as other people and you can't express emotional sympathy or empathy in the way that other people can and you can't have a full theory of mind like other people do it's it's so sad to me that there is seen to not be the need somehow to train medical professionals in (laughs) neurodiversity I know that obviously resources are extremely stretched and you can't cover everything but the new knowledge about autism is out there and it, it is stuff that's been properly researched it's not just the opinions of lay people and and you if you found the wherewithal you could train medical professionals on new theories of autism but it's not happening and so they're clinging to these very old-fashioned views and still putting them about they, they really are aren't they i, I mean i, I i'm yeah. back on twitter now I, I left twitter for a while but i'm back oh. on for um, professional reasons and I've, I, the, the amount of stories I see on there um, where people are saying how med- what's been said to them by m- medical professionals is, is shocking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it is yeah. absolutely shocking. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, and I mean, even the report I had for my diagnosis, which is sort of useful, it's going to be useful in some ways, but variably useful in others. Obviously, I have what's called comorbid ADHD. My my report says I'm severely impaired, which is uh, a hell of a thing to have on an official document with your name on it. I'm not going to lie. And it may be factually right, but it 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 it's a 
it's a impairment is a word that carries a lot of prejudices of what that means and so someone may look yeah. at that and, and think that you are far less able than you actually are it's difficult because you may it's in some situations actually need support but people have such ideas about what impairment impairment and disability are I think some people think that unless you're in a wheelchair not able to speak then you're not impaired yeah yeah exactly. um, or, and so or, they'll look at yeah. you on paper and they'll see impairment and they'll think this person could this person couldn't contribute xyz right actually we have a an huge amount to contribute doesn't doesn't mean that um we find life easy but um no we have a great deal to contribute to society <laughs> one piece of research that i read in the last couple of years was about how neurodiverse people actually intuitively understand each other in a way that neurotypical people don't understand them or yeah. even perhaps understand each other and that I found particularly interesting. I found that particularly interesting. And I read that research about three or four years ago before I had a, had a clue. And I'm like, well, no, I seem to, I, I get, I know a lot of autistic and ADHD people. I get on fine with them. So, you know, and obviously I'm not going to say hashtag not all neurotypicals, right? Because that, I was never <laughs> going to be like that. But I'm like, maybe I'm just the exception. Um, oh, oh no. Oh, oh dear. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, that... I think I think there's something in that. I always used to wonder why um, certain people were drawn to me. I mean, my main story is um, I used to live in Hove, right? And I remember very clearly. I was in my early twenties. I remember very clearly sitting on a a bench at the end of the high street in Hove, eating a sausage roll. And I looked up and there was this tiny little woman um, staring at me <laughs> with this funny little smile on her face. And she stood there and she looked at me and she looked at me and, you know, it was it was bizarre and peculiar, make me feel quite uncomfortable, but it wasn't threatening. <laughs> it was just uncomfortable. Right. So that happened. And then some weeks later, I used to be in a church an Anglican church. I've, I've long since abandoned that, but I was experimenting with Christianity at the time. Haven't and we all? I was sitting in church and this same funny little woman, came, I used to sit quite near the front, and this funny little woman came trotting, trotting down the aisle. And out of all the people in the church she could have sat next to, she picked me. And then um at a point we were talking and i i realized during the conversation that this was a lady with learning disabilities um right. she lived in um a sh a, she was semi-independent but she lived in a kind of a home where she was looked after but she would was able to go out on her own um she had learning disabilities and a lot of other people wouldn't talk to her because um she would do things like she would talk during the sermon 
and people would sort of look round and look very disapprovingly at both of us and stuff. And so I would sort of have to hold on to her hand as a signal to, you know, it's time to be quiet now. And um, against my will, really, I became her best friend and she sat Aww. with me every Sunday and she followed me everywhere. And it became a bit difficult because she would turn up to church socials and stuff and she would get jealous if I talked to anybody else and she would oh start my. pulling on my sleeve and things like this um but the point I'm trying to make is there had to be a reason why without even words she came to me there's something about yeah. there's something about me that makes people who are a bit different feel safe to approach me um whether it's my body language or whether it's something in my eyes um or or whether it's something less tangible i don't know but there is this empathy um that we recognize each other in some way and i've always got on better with people who are a bit different i suppose that's why why i'm an actor because um, the acting community are famously differently made up than well, yes. the, the non-acting community. Yeah. You know? um, famously, um, Anthony always, Hopkins is autistic. Yeah, we've always been outcast. Well, Actors have always been yeah. outcasts, you know. True. Um, so, and, and Historically and, speaking. And, and I mean, personally speaking, one of the places where I find empathy is, of course, is in um, media, I mean, films. I'm, I'm a big film fan and... I like, I like the catharsis you find in horror films as well, as, as I'm sure that's something you, you, I know that you, you sympathise with as well. Um, and, and thinking about that, and thinking about the way that people who are neurodiverse are presented in movies, and I, my thesis, and the thesis that I've presented in the last year or so, is that horror movies have the best representation of neurodiverse people by accident. Yes, exactly, because, often by accident. Because when people are deliberately autistic in movies, you know what you get? You get fucking Rain Man. Mm -hmm. You get that kid from, have you seen the Netflix series Atypical? I deliberately didn't watch it because well I didn't want to see that representation. You, you, but uh, you yeah. get the Sheldons. You get your Sheldons, don't you? Oh my God, yeah. But no, no, like the kid in Atypical. Um, and to be fair, it has apparently has from the second season on, they actually bothered to get some autistic people on 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 the staff of the writing staff, right? But you have basically a young man who is played by is played played by a neurotypical actor, but he's he's ah. an autistic character, and he is presented as having a resting perplexed face and every episode is about him being autistic and dealing with an autism related problem autistically it's really kind of annoying on the one hand it's like clearly people are like going representation on the other hand it's like that's not really the representation because one thing that I'd like to see about any sort of minority that I identify with like for example people you know, identify as queer, identify, I guess I have to identify now as neurodiverse. But 
I, for one, would like to be able to see representations of people like me who are able to misbehave and mm -hmm. to be able to get it wrong and to just be. And one of the things about horror movies is that horror movies, particularly the good ones, generally the good ones, have this thing where you have people who are clearly very well observed and weird. And those weird people are often sympathetic in some way, even when they're wielding carving knives. And these sympathetically weird people actually are by accident given all the signifiers that means that they can easily be identified as neurodiverse. Because yeah. a lot of the things that we societally consider as weird, particularly people of our generation, because um, I think we're both roughly the same age. I think you're a couple of years younger than me, but we are both of Generation X pretty much, aren't we? You know, and yeah. we, our generation defines weirdness as basically all of the signifiers of neurodiversity under stress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's the loner, the outcast, the socially yeah. awkward, uh, yeah. Um, so, for example, um, one film that we both watched, uh, and I know that you've been re-watching films fantastically, but um, Lucky McKee's film May from about 2001, yeah. which is a fantastic, it's one of my favourites, obviously. And now I know why. And, <laughs> I, I mean, well, what did you make of May? I mean, feel well, free May to spoil it by the way. <laughs> May begins at what you, before it descends into utter deprav <laughs> depravity. I say depravity as if I it, disapprove of it, but what I mean is before it descends into the point of no return, mm. um, you're, you're looking at a portrait of a young woman who, well, from the very start, we see her with her, her relationship with her mother. And you could say that the sort of mom that you're seeing there is a refrigerator mom. I'm doing, um, I'm doing the bunny ears there. Air quotes. Because I don't actually agree with the theory, uh, the theory of refrigerator moms, but the, the the theory has been for a long time, or was for a long time, sort of since the middle of the twentieth century, that uh, autism was caused by your mother not being warm and caring enough to you. Right. And there we see at the beginning of May a little girl who is given a doll and told she mustn't take the doll out of the box because she might damage it, and uh, her mother is. Um, giving her an eye patch for her lazy eye because no, um, but then covering it with the girl's hair because the other children mustn't see the eye patch because that would signify that the girl is weird. And um, she's dressing the girl up in very pretty little clothes um, and wanting this girl to be a picture of feminism and, and keep herself clean and tidy. Um, and the girl isn't flourishing. Um, so 
from the beginning, you've got a signifier, rightly or wrongly, wrongly, I think, because I don't believe in refrigerator moms, that this girl is going to turn out different. And of course she does. And it's not just about the fact she's got a lazy eye that sort of points in the wrong direction, but uh, she's fixated on body parts, maybe because she has the lazy eye, but also to a huge degree where she will just focus on one part of a person's body and become utterly, um, I don't want to say obsessed, we hear that word too much yeah. it's her special interest is people's body parts and and of course she has all those tropes of awkwardness where uh, she can't introduce herself to the boys she likes um right she uh she can't find the words to express how she feels she just goes silent um yeah, so many, so many beautiful parts, no beautiful holes. Um, I, I mean, I mean, and, and it's interesting because you look at Ray's uh, May's refrigerator mum, but you could also interpret that in a different way because autism does tend to run in families, and sure. you could also see that actually it's neurodiverse mum who is expressing affection for her daughter by way of her special interest but being yeah, of in that the only generation way she can perhaps yeah. yes and being of that generation wouldn't have had it identified and everything um and of course the the thing that her mum says um if you can't find a friend make one um which will later segue into something very nasty which is not unrelated to May's particular special interest in body parts, um, is essentially on the one hand, the kind of sort of like down home bullshit wisdom that my mum used to say to me. But on the other hand, it's a sort of thing that comes from how this person coped with the world when they were that age. And it's really nice that you have that scene at the start. And of course, May meets all these people, particularly these two people. There's this Adam, who's played by Jeremy Sisto, who's a mainstay mm. of American TV in the early 2000s. I think he was in Six Feet Under for a couple of seasons as well. Yes, and he um, was in Clueless, and he was a real douchebag in Clueless. Yes, he's quite good at playing a douchebag. And, yeah. um, but also, um, Polly, who's the woman she works with, played by Anna Faris, who... Yes, she, is, of, she of scary movie fame. But and, and, and because she's of scary movie fame, is one of the most underrated actors I think I've ever seen, because Anna Faris gives such a fantastic performance in May as well. And it's interesting seeing this, because on the one hand, she, she basically falls for Adam because he's got lovely hands. Yes. And he seems quite nice and when she says I'm a bit weird he says I like weird yes he does say that but you can tell from his face as soon as because he says well tell me your weird story about the tell me a weird story about uh, about your work at the vets <laughs> and as soon as she begins telling it you can see from his face 
and the fact that he drops the sandwich he was about to eat, that um, this is not what he meant at all. No. no. <laughs> he, was, he was looking for a manic pixie dream girl. Yes. And in fact, he's, he's getting involved with someone who can quite easily talk about a dog bursting its stitches all over the kitchen floor. And the guts flying everywhere, yeah. Yes. And, and then, and, of course, later he, he shows her his, his silly little college movie that he made. Which is a horror and movie. And you see him yeah. watching her because he's hoping that she go, he's hoping that she go, oh, that's, that's your, you know, you're, you're wild, you're too gross or whatever. But actually, she's, she's loving it. She's kind of hot for it, in fact. It makes her yeah. kind of... And again, you can see yeah. from his face how disappointed he is that he hasn't managed to shock her. Yeah. But, and a lot of people say he's a nice guy, but I don't think he is that nice because he took he's it to bed really anyway. really not. He takes the bed anyway <laughs> until she bites, bites, his, bites his lip open because yeah. she sees that in the movie and thinks he's into it. Because she's into as it, you would, into it. as yeah. you would, as, as, well, as one I would. say that as, as as I would, right? Being uh, being an autistic girl. Because I why would, because would you I show think, that to someone? Yeah, because you think people are who they. When you're autistic, you're you 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 start out at least believing people are who they say they are. Exactly, and you, you believe in truth. When you're I, when you're I, autistic, you 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 put a a high a high value on truth. Words mean things. Yeah. Words actually mean things. Yes. And <laughs> to discover actually that more people than I thought don't actually take seriously that co that concept is quite quite um, disappointing generally. And it's interesting that when later on towards the end she gets to meet one of his other girlfriends. Who essentially he just bullies. Yeah, he's horrible. He bullies her, this poor he? girl. But no, he, the because of a dummy. Yeah, he's he's really mean to her. The only thing that you can say about him is that he's smart enough to know that he needs to get away from her. He's smart yes. enough to recognise that he's in danger, but not smart enough to recognise how acute the danger is. I don't um, know if he would have been in danger if he hadn't treated her better in the first place. Well, there is that. But you see, that's exactly <laughs> that. But you see, he's not used to treating women badly and then them and then finding himself in danger. This is new to him. He's got no idea what to do. And so he just ghosts her um, because that's all he can do. Meanwhile, May is massively hit upon by Polly. And I don't Polly, think Polly is really sympathetic. Yeah, I don't think Polly means any harm. No, the none whatsoever. Is with the, the trouble is with the relationship with Polly is that made. It's funny that she's called Polly actually because she's Polly because she is polyamorous. <laughs> she is legitimately but, Polly. Yes, but May doesn't know that when the relationship starts. So yeah. again, there's. It's not a lie that's been told, but no. there's been an omission of a truth that was would have yeah. been important. But that omission that <laughs> of the truth isn't deliberate, even. It's that Polly, yeah. Polly, Polly at no point actually actually expresses the fact that she actually fails to express that. She genuinely likes May, 
and that she is quite up for a no strings roll in the hay right yeah she you know she wants she wants she likes to bag as many pretty girls as she as she can right and may is one of those but that doesn't mean that she doesn't like any of them there is a bit where you see polly's other girlfriend who is a bit of a you know a bit of a cheerleader type and not not all that nice but what's interesting is that may overhears both adam and polly talking about her to other people yeah and she overhears Adam and someone going, oh, oh, my God, May. Oh, she was weird, wasn't she, Adam? He's like, oh, my God, yeah, I need to get out of that. Or something like that. Meanwhile, Polly, you have Polly's, Polly's girlfriend says, I do not understand what you see in her. Which suggests that Polly has been basically going, oh, she's lovely. I really like her. And when she says, because of course her last words on this earth before she shuffles off her mortal coil are, I trust you, May. Yeah. And they're genuine. I know you would never hurt me. I know yeah. you would never hurt me. And they're genuine. She, because she's trusting and she just, but the difference is it's not that she's actually lying to May or even that she's necessarily even hiding the truth or failing to get the truth across. It's the, simply the fact that she is communicating in ways that May is unable to understand, which is where the reading of this film, that May is a fantastic piece of autism representation, really sort of like takes off. Because May doesn't get these sort of levels of communication that the neurotypical people, the quote normal unquote people in the audience, in, yes. in the cast are doing. I mean, there's I'm sorry to go missing. back to Adam from Lovely Polly, but yeah. there's that moment in the laundrette after she's already been ghosted. Yeah. Adam comes in, sees her, thinks about it, and then decides he will say hi to her. He will ask her how she is. And she's by that point, she'd already, I think, accepted that he didn't like her anymore. But because he said to her, hi, May, how are you doing? You see but she interprets that as, um, as an opening to try and pick the relationship back up. Yeah. And that kind of breaks your heart because you, you're like, oh, May, can't you see? He's just being polite. It means nothing. Yeah. Please don't do this to yourself. You know, I, I feel nervous. I always feel nervous about talking about a character like May and saying, oh, yes, this is an autistic character, because obviously May goes on to do such awful things. But I, would, I don't want people to think yeah. that autistic people are capable of what May does. So I want to say that, that we can see autism in May, but it's more than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not the autism <laughs> that causes it. But then that's the thing, I think, because if neurotypical people could be serial killers, um, hmm. Why can't an autistic person actually? I mean, you know, you know, equal representation is silly serial killing and things. Well, so true, that, true. But and, and you I know, I mean, you, you have to, you yeah. have to think about how people think. And you know, I think was it Columbine where one of the boys who did committed the Columbine school oh, yeah. shootings was autistic. So then autism was equated with Shooting. extreme violence, as in, opposed to yeah. online radicalization. Which, yeah. you know, so, and, and I think, and I mean, so it I, I always mean, makes yeah. me feel a bit icky. Um, I mean, clearly, <laughs> clearly, the whole thing about hearing hearing your your doll's voice 
in your head as well might suggest that other illnesses were are at play with May as exactly. well. Exactly. There, there's there are a, other things going on. There's a psychosis too. Um, yeah. Which I think brings us very neatly to the other main film that we were going to talk about, which I know you've really got thoughts about, which is Excision. Excision. Yes, yeah. I suppose I identify more with poor Pauline than I do with May. Um, even though Pauline also does something atrocious. Um, I think, and I think I, uh, I think that I definitely sympathise more with Pauline than your average viewer from what I've been able to glean from reviews and podcasts. Same. And I think there are reasons for that too. Right, so Excision is about Pauline. Pauline's a teenager. She's played by Anna Lynn McCord. Um, she has an uptight religious family, including a very uptight religious mother who's played by none other than Tracy Lords of all mm. people. In fact, the cast is amazing. The pastor's played by John Waters himself. Um, the Pope of Trash playing the pastor of something vaguely trashy. And you, you have... Malcolm McDowell is a Malcolm math, maths teacher. Malcolm isn't it? Ray Wise. Laura, Ray Laura Wise Palmer's is the principal. Principal of the school. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's got this amazing cast. Um, and Pauline, I think what's interesting about Pauline and the thing that made me kind of immediately understand her and the thing which clearly a lot of critics don't understand is that we see in excision her fantasies yeah and these fantasies are very very artificial they're very staged they're very controlled they are weird unquote weird, weird quote unquote they're weird a lot of ways. and they are gory yes they they are blood soaked um, and I think that people read them, therefore, as evidence of <clears throat> either the filmmaker wanting to gross you out or as Pauline being <clears throat> quote unquote evil. But all of Pauline's <laughs> fantasies involve her blood. I wouldn't they're, say they're, all, but well, many. Well, I know, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a few months since I've seen it. So I, I just, but yeah, many of Pauline's fantasies feature her blood. And I think you get the impression that clearly, clearly, clearly she, she sort of, it's, it's shown quite explicitly in the film that she knocks one out over, over many of these fantasies as well. This is what's going on yeah. in her head when she's like having some alone time. But um, the, the fantasies are quite, staged and it's the control that's there the it, it's the it's the tableau in as much as anything else and I never had fantasies personally as a teenager about blood but the things my imagination was always very off kilter compared to other people I learned very quickly as a teenager, not to talk to people about my imagination, generally. Same. Because, you know, and it's just your imagination. It's just in your head. You're not doing it. Um, but at the same time, you know, and obviously 
you know, like I said, there's no bloods or anything, lots of things that are going on, but they, they're sort of divorced from reality in a kind of clearly impossible kind of way. Yeah. You know, um, there's sort of, there are entire communities on Facebook now of people, people who are into werewolves and, and Frankensteins and things. You know, into by sexually into, you mean, or yeah, <laughs> I I would put it <clears throat> I would put it this way. So I know a guy who is the most loveliest guy I could want to know. I can trust him with anything. He's always there for me. It's he's an he's in America. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's like daily, daily messaging. Um, he is a good guy. He, his, his wife passed away. Um, and he still lives with his father-in-law and takes care of him. Um, he just has time for everyone. He looks after people, but I happen to know that in his imagination, uh, his sexual fantasies are very sadistic, right? And he has said to me, could I be a bad person because I, I think about this sadistic stuff? And I said, no, because that's your fantasies. It's not you. You're not the person in your fantasies. Yeah. It's, and, and people shouldn't judge you by, by that part of you. And that's why I'm a safe space for you to talk to about them because you know I never will. Right. And so, you know, just because you are seeing a person on the screen having these fantasies, it doesn't follow, as many reviewers say, that Pauline is a sociopath. No, and <laughs> there are many there are many indicators in the film that suggest she's not a sociopath because one of the big plot points is that she has a younger sister who on the one hand is clearly gets all the attention from the parents, but part of the attention part of that is because she is terminally ill. And yeah, she has cystic fibrosis. Yes. What's nice actually about Grace, the sister, is although she has cystic fibrosis, we don't see her constantly feeble and um you know, a, a figure of pity. Grace is actually a, a very rounded character. And she, she is seen protecting Pauline when another girl is mean to Pauline. Yes, in fact, Grace and this is, is, yeah. Um, if I can yeah. elaborate on the whole sociopathy thing and saying, oh, um, we, I ought to go back a bit for the sake of the listeners and say, so Pauline presents as, she's another social loner, She's difficult to look at because she doesn't wash her hair. Um, she has spots on her face that she's obviously picked at. Um, she is. Um, she has a, a way of carrying herself that is almost masculine. One reviewer said lesbian looking, which I says, think I says, think says more about the the reviewer yep. than it does about Pauline, but it's certainly a non-feminized way of carrying herself. Um, you know, she's not bullied. 
she's basically she she's generally people people are more scared of her at school generally yeah but this so this is the sort of person we're looking at we're looking at a person who is very off-putting right yeah she also talks in a tone of voice which can be taken as sarcastic snotty superior but we also see her talking to the jump rope girl and trying to connect with her and it's the jump rope girl who turns her nose up and yeah. doesn't want to talk to Pauline and her sister says don't be mean to my sister we see her at the cotillion class which is how can I explain cotillion it's like um it's preparation for your debutante coming because this is all set in southern yeah, it's, it's sort of finishing classes for young ladies. Yes, yes, it's like a finishing class. You learn how to dance with boys, that kind of thing. Um, at Cotillion, we see her find a, a younger girl who's sitting alone and go and try to befriend her. And she almost, almost pulls it off. But then she says something that is too weird, even yeah. for the younger girl. So where other people are saying, oh, she... she She's constantly pushing people away, et cetera, et cetera. No, there's plenty of instances where she is not pushing people away. She's trying to connect. I think the scene where she thanked her, said, oh, thanks, Dad, for the coleslaw. <laughs> and her, her dad said, oh, I saved your life. You're welcome. And then she immediately turns to him and goes, Dad, guess what? And, of course, Dad is then... I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk to you anymore Pauline because he's upset that she went mm. on about the coleslaw but I thought well clearly she doesn't know she's upset him I think she was trying to make a joke yeah that's what I think yeah no I don't think um, it's fairly evident yeah the main point in that film I, I know it's going to be hard for listeners who haven't seen it because we're because I'm picking out small instances it's on Amazon narrative. Prime in the UK so if you're in the UK it's easy to find <laughs> There's a point where that real tipping point where she goes and hits the other the two schoolgirls yeah. at school. And what's happened just before that is that they have spray painted uh, Pauline is a C-U-N-T slash K-U-N-T because they don't know how to spell it <laughs> on the house. Again, a lot of people interpret this violence as a sign of Pauline being a sociopath because she's angered by this. But if it was just about Pauline's feelings, if it was just about Pauline's single-minded, single-mindedness and Pauline doesn't care about anybody else, if it was that, then why did we see all four members of Pauline's family, Pauline, her sister, her mum and dad, why are we shown the four of them standing in a row, staring at the defaced garage door. If it was right. just about Pauline being upset, we would only see Pauline, but we see the whole family. And I think that the filmmaker is trying to tell us, possibly, I don't know the filmmaker. <laughs> I tried to find out what the, the filmmaker was thinking, but I'll come on to that. I think the filmmaker is saying Pauline is trying to protect her family. Whatever difficulties there are between her and her mother, especially, 
and the rest of the family, she is avenging the entire family here, not just herself. This yes. is not a selfish act. Growing up, this is going to get horribly personal at this point, but growing up, I always sort of felt that there was like this glass wall between me and the rest of the world. And that there's this missing level of communication. And I thought that if I worked hard enough at figuring out how to get past these things and figuring out the rules, I would eventually find where the door was in this glass wall and the key to the door and unlock it and walk through and be in the rest of human discourse. And discovering a couple of years ago and listeners are going to find this at best amusing and at worst utterly tragic but discovering that most people don't pause between their sentences because they're cycling through an endless series of internal menus of things to say so they don't sound weird and like correct sort of like flowcharts of how conversation should go was quite a thing, actually. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and I have similar experiences. Um, I will often find, say in a situation where there are many people around a table in a pub, Right. I will suddenly find myself the one person, the one person around that table who hasn't spoken for a few minutes, several minutes. And I will right. look around at these people and I will feel that I am, just as you said, separated by a glass wall. And I will think, how can they sustain this? How, how, how are they still talking? How is this possible? I, I, I am stuck, paralyzed, mute even. How do they do, how is, how do they do? I don't know how it is done. Right, I mean, I mean like, for example, I managed to negotiate small talk. I came, came I actually, I actually quite enjoy small talk now. But uh, now, after many, many years of practice, because I realized at some point, that small talk doesn't involve anybody actually saying anything and that it's actually sort of a kind of back and forth game and that I developed a kind of ludic satisfaction in navigating a small talk discussion in the way that, I don't know, the Rainbow Road on 150cc Mario Kart Wii used to like have me and that it was something that was challenging enough for me to come through um with some effort but easy enough that I still win every time and <laughs> kind of small talk has that same kind of like ludic sweet spot for me and that it's like oh I can do this you know it's like okay yes I'll do this okay you said that I need to say this you know and that's something bing, bing, bing. and nine times out of ten I come out of a small talk discourse without people thinking I'm a freak. And <laughs> I'm not sure I've mastered it because as soon, I mean, as soon as I said to you, how are you? I thought, well, that's 
not a good question to ask someone like <laughs> us. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you see, when you said, how are you, you said, I'm okay. Actually, I've had a terrible day, but it doesn't matter because that was how you do it. You know, so yeah, I immediately I, went into game mode. I suddenly like I'm not, pressing I the don't, X button. I don't think I have right? the game mode. Right. Well, sometimes <laughs> I have the game mode, but I'm not comfortable in the, I'm not comfortable in the game, game mode, the I, game mode. Yes, um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty... still like, oh, I'd much rather tell the truth, but I know you don't want me to, so I guess I'll say I'm okay. Yes, but I feel really uncomfortable because I want to tell the truth. Yes, yeah, um, it's like, but course, anyway, I suppose yeah. we should go back to Pauline, really. Well, we should, yeah, I mean, we should go back to the movies, but I, I, I think this is all of this is relevant because you all of this is relevant because we have a character. But I do want to talk about Pauline and the truth. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about the truth. Because another feature of sociopaths is lying. Right. And I don't think Pauline is a liar. Um, She's very, very blunt to the point of rudeness. And she says exactly what's on her mind, no matter how hurtful it will be. So that's one thing. Although we do sometimes see her opt to not say anything. At the, 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 the very first breakfast scene that we see, her mother is pecking at her and Pauline just gets up and walks away where right. someone else would have turned around and give us, given as good as they got. So I think maybe sometimes Pauline chooses not to say anything because what she would say would be hurtful. But anyway, so there's yeah. that. She always says something very blunt when she's accused to her face of lying because she's her mother says, where have you been? She says, I've been to the library. Her mother says, that's a lie. And the, the look on Pauline's face, she's just so angry to have been accused of lying. And then she unpacks all the library books and throws them on the floor. She is so offended that she's been accused of lying. Right. And then there's the Ipecac scene, which is where she drinks Ipecac at school to make herself sick and hopefully get out of cotillion, which is kind of an act of deception. But it means that when she says, I feel sick, she doesn't have to lie because she genuinely feels sick. Right. Yes. And then when her mum calls her on it, she says, she, there's no squirming, there's no desperately trying to make herself in the right or anything like that, which a quote-unquote normal person would do. Or a sociopath. Or a sociopath. <laughs> she immediately says, don't worry, it was a last-ditch attempt to get out of cotillion. There's nothing more to it than that. Right. Yeah. Right. Because her mum's like, are you be, are you suicidal again? You know, that sort of thing. Are you self-harming? And yeah. that sort of thing. And she's like, no, it was the last digit attempt to get out of Cotillion. And honestly, yes. And I think that's the thing. I think even when Pauline... Total honesty. Yeah. Even when Pauline <laughs> basically indul- engages in any kind of subterfuge, it is a subterfuge that is not neurotypical subterfuge, mm. nor is it sociopathic subterfuge. It's something else. Right. It's much, it's much more akin to autistic subterfuge. Right. And um, she's accused of 
you know, sarcasm. But it's, she has this flat affect all the time. So how do we know she's being sarcastic? <laughs> right. Um, and she asks for help. I think that at least three times she asks for real help from a real psychiatrist. And by the time she is granted a real psychiatrist, it is too late. Yeah. Her, her, her disassociation with reality has gone too far. And then comes the DIY lung transplant. Yeah. Yeah. Which, <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to talk too much about that because it's such an upsetting scene. And again, it's like, let's not let people think that an autistic person would really go that far. <laughs> but, no, um, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's, <laughs> this, this is kind of actually, and I, I mean, this is, this is kind of where, where my thesis falls down um, really, because on, when autistic people are called autistic in movies they're either pitiable or they're saints right but obviously you have may and you have pauline in excision and these characters wind up both of them both of them wind up doing things that tend towards the the traumatically surgical um, at the at the end of their movies, specifically, um, going back to May, actually, it's, it's interesting that May's dissociation and both of these things actually wind up as a result of dissociation. Yeah. So May May's constant like grinding down of herself and like the constant sort of feeling of isolation leads to a dissociation so extreme that she dresses up as the doll from the glass case which she has accidentally destroyed um, in a gruesome scene involving a bunch of blind kids. Um, and she dresses up as the doll. And when she dresses yeah. up as the doll, she becomes functionally a different person. Mm -hmm. And this is not the same as a dissociative identity thing, I think. This is, this is, this is dissociation. And Pauline's dissociation extends to her thinking, that maybe she could do surgery in her garage with some medical textbooks. Yes, to try and give her save her sister's dying, life. Dying sister a new set of lungs. Yeah. And it, it really breaks your heart. It, that the last seat to me breaks my heart. It's and really I, heartbreaking. I've watched the watching the film for this podcast it was the third time I watched it and I still cried. I think it's fair. And the, the thing, the thing is, is that again, it's not the act of a sociopath to sort of genuinely, when you realize that it's not working to dissolve into the arms of your mother, who does actually hold her as yes. well at the end. Yes. You think, you think she's going to knock seven bells out of her. And freak but out. It, it, but it, but it becomes a hug instantly yeah there's, there's no question of it she's she's horrified by what's happened but immediately understands that in some ways and again this is something that i struggle with actually it's not her fault in some ways 
I mean, obviously she's responsible for, you know, the deaths of two young women, but on the other hand, it's not really her fault in some ways. There's some other force that has made it so that she couldn't do anything other than dissociate to these. And as you said, she asked for help repeatedly. She repeatedly asked for psychiatric help. Uh, she um, has been constantly misunderstood and her opinions dismissed. Um, she tried to make she tries on two separate occasions to befriend other girls and is dismissed. She tries to have this moment with this boy who, you know, she says, I hope to see you again sometime, doesn't she? And he yeah, says, get off my car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, every attempt she makes to reach out to people is misinterpreted and dismissed. Her sister is the only person she can express her real feelings to. And her mother, as difficult as their relationship is and as damaged it is by the fact Pauline overheard her saying that Pauline, saying to her father, that Pauline was impossible to love. Mm. Um, also, Pauline has then been told the next day by her mother that something awful happened to her mother when her mother was growing up. And we see Pauline walk away and not really want to talk about it, but that's something she must... If everything else I believe about Pauline is true, then that probably did have some weight as well. Right. And right. She, she, and it's not just that she's trying to save her sister, she's also courting her mother's approval. Come and see these the fine work I did on this. Come closer, I want you to see the fine work I did on the stitches. Yeah. Even right at the end. I, I, I think... Yeah, I mean, none of those things are so shabby. I mean, she she self-diagnoses with BPD, I seem to think, remember, yeah. but which but she clearly this... doesn't have, right? And yeah, but again, I mean, this is this is what we do when we don't know what our condition yeah. is. I I yeah, I thought for a while maybe I was bipolar because I would have these terrible outbursts. I now know they're autistic meltdowns. Right. You know, and I and I knew I was depressed. <laughs> so could could I be bipolar? You know, is that it? Can I be tested for bipolar? Right. Um, you know, um we um and the, the frequency with which we are misdiagnosed with other mental health conditions is including borderline personality disorder. Right. It's very real. So I tried to find out if the director was actually 
speaking from a place of experience here. The only evidence I could find was in one interview. He said, well, I have a very weird family. But then he laughs it off and he says, I'm only kidding. But maybe that's true. Maybe he does have a very quote unquote weird family. And maybe they're undiagnosed autistic people. Right. It's like, I also watched Horse Girl, which is about a girl who is descending into, um, uh, I think, a schizophrenic. A delusion, delusionary state, uh, psychosis, definitely. Yeah, schizophrenic delusions. Um, And again, it's not written as an autistic character, but we see many traits. And when you read the interview with the writer who also plays the main character, she says, well, I wrote a horse girl. I've seen a lot of horse girls, i.e. girls who are obsessed with horses. And I wanted her to look like a horse girl and behave like a horse girl. Well, these horse girls that you grew up with, they may very well have been undiagnosed autistic girls who were fixated on horses horses. yes for their their special interest so again you are accidentally um coming up with a character with who has comorbidities because you've basically um because yeah so it's it's alison brie as well of course who's well known as a comic comedic and dramatic dramatic actor she's already she 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 was we've already talked about alison brie in other episodes of this actually but um yeah, and Horse Girl, um, you get the impression that she's clever enough to spot things through observation. Obviously, you know a lot more about the craft of acting than I do, but I get the distinct impression from many of the actors that I've spoken to that observation is a central, central part of what actors do because it's through observation that you are able to enter the skins of other people. And I think observation also is how autistic people actually manage to survive in society. Because I didn't get given the handbook of social discourse. Right, I actually had to figure out what the rules were by looking at things. Um, Yeah, you you think, well, who's fitting in? How do they behave? Maybe I ought to do that. How do they dress? I'll dress like them, you know? Yeah, but also things like, you know, if you're talking to people, you wait until they reach a certain point before you say a certain thing. You sort of gauge how interested they are in things by looking at specific signifiers of eye contact and posture. You spot posture and things like that. I think these are things that actually would, I think, benefit an actor, actually. Um, Well, I I, I often think, would I have my talent if I hadn't grown up like this, you know? Although I think it's also the fact that our emotions are closer to the surface as well. Yeah. Because it's, as an actor, you don't only observe people, but you have to feel. <laughs> you have to feel so yeah. damn much. And you can't do that if you're, if you're, if you're thick-skinned, unfortunately. It is <laughs> If you're wild. not sensitive. It is wild that I could go to an official... Um, parents autism awareness group and be told by professionals who deal with autistic children every way that autistic people don't communicate emotions in a correct way or in a in in a way that people understand it's like bloody the benefit of the listeners 
For the benefit of the listeners, I'm face palming. Yes, yeah, and, and quite <laughs> rightly too. I'm, I mean, I'm, I've been face palming inside forever since I'm, yeah. and I went to one session, um, made the mistake of outing myself, got messages from the people running it saying it was so good to have you there in your insights and thought, oh God, no, and ran a mile and never went to another one. Um, Quote, unquote, autistic behaviours such as not speaking to anyone or shrieking or uh, flapping your hands around, rocking. Jiggling your leg. Not so much flapping because that can be a happy thing. Right, you probably but... should be allowed to flap. But, well, there's flapping and there's flapping. I do an anxious flapping, which is very much a distress flap. So it depends I, I on actually, my, my hands do weird all things when things, I'm distressed as well. All know. these things are communication. They are our, our way of saying, I am extremely uncomfortable and distressed and I want it to stop. Isn't it wild and, that all of the things <laughs> that people would give you as a list of the standard behaviours of autistic people are all behaviours of what autistic people do when they're upset? Yeah. 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 And, you know, like I, you know, I move my hands around in weird ways. I jiggle my leg. My leg jiggles like nothing else when I'm kind of, I let out weird sighs as well, mm -hmm. weird noises. And I, I, you know, sometimes people think that I'm, I'm angry or, or cross or upset and stuff because of that. And, all of these things you can you can see and i can hardly call myself an expert on autistic behaviors really or even on representation i think that the most i can do is basically see myself in some things and realize that a lot of the behaviors i had which I've always known were unusual are actually not as unusual as I thought they were because they're actually have a name because they come from autism or ADHD or realize a lot of the experiences I have are not experiences that a lot of people have. So, you know, for example, I was, this, this came to me yesterday morning, in fact, because I, realize that actually most people don't occasionally have moments where they forget how to put socks on <laughs> and you sit there looking at this pair of socks and you actually have to concentrate <laughs> and most people don't have to concentrate on putting a pair of socks on yeah yeah life is so exhausting it is i mean it's hard for me to get out of the front door sometimes. Right. I don't think I don't think I'm necessarily agoraphobic, but it's and it's it's hard to articulate, but it's just hard to get to that point and go through all the other points that need to be got through to get out the front door. But this doesn't mean that we can't actually express our emotions or anything. It's just that we're presented in a world that overwhelms us. Yes. And this is why I think 
tying things together and bringing things to a neat ending because we've been talking for over an hour now and this is a great time to close but i think that this is a good point to finish on that we spend a lot of our lives being overwhelmed and one of the things about seeing characters in particularly in horror movies who are accidentally very neatly represented as being neurodiverse is that you see a lot of catharsis there because the ending of May particularly where essentially she takes revenge upon the world in essentially an orgy of um bloods and knives and sewing needles um is and finally makes a friend um yeah uh, is is kind of cathartic in a lot of yes. ways you come out it of is it. cathartic and i mean that goes back to what the point i was making about yeah having violent fantasies but not actually being a violent person because well, um, the cool and, things and about my, fiction. My, my my reluctance to talk about the, the violent behavior of the of the characters but i mean when we talk about the catharsis that's that's what it is these films enable us to feel something without doing the bad things indeed and when may basically massacres horrible adam and lovely polly and that oblivious punk guy with the nice arms. I think he's, his name is Blank. He is, yeah. He's, he's played by the same guy who plays the dude in the rabbit suit in Donnie Darko. The only other oh. thing I've seen him in. And also Polly's girlfriend with the lovely legs. All of these things are essentially, in a weird kind of way, a revenge fantasy, a, an orchestrated impossible revenge fantasy. And think about the great thing about fantasies is that they're fantasies yeah. and that you never have to roll through on them. You can just watch them on the screen and come out at the end and go, <sighs> yep. and you, you don't have to like go and, you know, May, May's murders are horrible and not all of the people, no, none of those people deserve to be murdered, not even Adam, right? But that's part of the point. You sort of see that orgy of horror at the end and find in it some sort of glimmer of relief yeah yeah you know and i mean this isn't new anyway i mean aristotle came up with this but you know this is, this is an aristotelian truth um, yeah. i mean this is meant to be the purpose of theater Yes. You know, if we go back to the Greeks, this is the purpose of theatre. And that is <laughs> that's like a bugbear when, you know, people just want to see entertainment. They don't oh, want God. to think. So <laughs> you know, it's like all these brilliant ideas for plays we could put on, but no, we have to do the same old thing because... <laughs> it's like, yeah. People want to be confronted right. with their... Yeah, because yeah. it's only been the point of theatre for 2,400 years. <laughs> um, 
Joanna, it's been so much fun talking with you and I've really enjoyed having you on and um, you know Aww. at any point we can find another another reason to have you on I'd really like to so um, I'd certainly come back thank you yeah, yes good. this has been fun for me too good. so yeah <laughs> and um, so once again thanks Joanna and thanks for listening everybody Questioning Bodies is an independent podcast hosted and edited by me, Howard David Ingham. Music is by Stephen Horry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>